This is the full interview from a segment from the Overdrive radio and podcast program. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. Michael Regan is Emeritus Professor of Human Factors with the University of New South Wales Research Centre for Integrated Transport Innovation. Michael's current research interests include driver distraction and inattention, driver interaction with autonomous vehicles and human factors in road and traffic engineering. G'day, Michael. Hi, David. When I did engineering at Uni of New South Wales, they had just redesigned the course and they stipulated that I had to do a number of general study subjects, which I loved. Is the University of New South Wales still strongly trying to link what might be called the hard sciences with the social sciences? Well, yes, very much so. And in fact, I designed and uh, ran a couple of years ago. Of course, it's totally unique in Australia for um, civil and transport engineers called Human Factors in Civil and Transport Engineering. And of course, is a whole semester course, basically designed to um, get engineers thinking about user-centered design and understanding what human capabilities and limitations are and how to design the transport system uh, to accommodate those and exploit those limitations and capabilities. We did some work with a behavioural scientist on road safety education, which is often, I'll tell you what you do and assume you should do it. We've got to engage with people with where they're at much more. Is that part of the human factor design? One thing to say that you'll train people to use the system and you'll license them to use the system, but once they get out there in the system, it's important that the system is designed from a human perspective. One of the things that we hear a lot about is that human error contributes to uh, more than 90% of road crashes, and that figure is fairly stable, actually, across a wide range of industries in which uh, crashes and accidents and incidents occur. But often the human error in transport is created by poor human design of the system itself rather than due to the um, limits of capability of, of the humans that are using the system. And so, you know, when we think about human error in transport, and if we want to reduce it further, given that the, um, you know, the rate at which we're able to reduce crashes has sort of reached a plateau at the moment, one uh, fruitful area is, is by improving the, the design from a user-centred perspective of uh, both uh, vehicles and roads um, and, and traffic management infrastructure. You co-wrote a paper nearly 20 years ago, Driver Distraction, a review of the literature, where you said that nearly a quarter of the vehicle crashes in the US are estimated to result from drivers being inattentive or distracted. You predicted that this would escalate. How accurate would that figure be now? The figure now, in terms of fatalities, is around about 10% in in most of the studies I've read. In a recent one here in Australia, it was an, uh, an analysis of data that was collected in what they call an in-depth crash study where um, investigators actually went out to the scene and collected a whole lot of data about the crash. That found that here in Australia, uh, around 15% of fatalities are due to um, distraction. And in a a recent study in the US, they found that the figure was up around 70%. That was what they called a naturalistic driving study where they could uh, put cameras in uh, about 3,000 vehicles as well as other sensors to detect when a car had had a crash or any other kind of vehicle and they could actually see what was happening and they could see what had actually distracted people in that study and so you know often distraction related crashes go unreported to the police but when you do these kinds of studies you really see what's happening 
in the vehicle. And so 70%, that's a big number. And if you dissect, dissect what was happening, even simple things like people like finding a radio station was increasing the risk of a crash by two times. Mucking around with in-vehicle climate controls was increasing the risk of having a crash by nearly two and a half times. And really simple things like, not so simple, but, you know, driving a handheld cell phone to, to get a number of people were holding it, 12 times the increase in risk. Even looking outside the vehicle for an extended amount of time increased crash risk by seven times. So not just things happening inside the vehicle that are increasing the risk of distraction, but, but uh, things that attract your attention outside. So I'd say getting back to your question, I think the situation is uh, probably worse than I had predicted or what the data were telling us uh, 20 years ago. Those camera analysis also shows that it, it's not a quick one-off situation. It's also something that you can build up. We think of a crash as a, an instantaneous misjudgment, yet it's to do with perhaps a longer time sort of analysis and understanding of what's happening within the vehicle? Yes, exactly. I mean, for every crash, there are multiple contributing uh, factors. And there are things that are occurring over time that uh, sort of escalate in, in time that, you know, uh, together create a, uh, create a crash. And there are a lot of things that we could be doing through, again, as I said, good user-centered design to minimize, in the case of distraction, for example, distraction-related crashes. And we know in the vehicle from a distraction perspective and generally from a design perspective, there are lots of design issues that we know are contributing to... Um, Crashes, you know, we've got, for example, the absence of physical controls now and a lot of the new vehicles that force you to have to control things through what we call soft controls using touch screens, through multiple menus. And so by the time you work out how to choose your radio station, you've probably looked at that touch screen five times, interacted with it for several seconds. And that's just one very simple example of fundamental design issues that are out there causing crashes because people are being distracted. And one of the things I've been in our saying quite often uh, recently in relation to distraction, you know, we have an Australian New Car Assessment Program, or ANCAP as we call it, that gives star ratings for, for rating the safety of cars. And if a car's got five stars, people can be assured that it's a safe car. But we don't give any stars for good user-centred design of vehicles or the design of vehicles in particular that reduce distraction, for example. And if we did that, manufacturers would be more likely through competition with each other to develop a better designed human-machine interface to improve the usability of the cockpit in the vehicle and to reduce distraction. I road test cars. I do a couple of weeks, and the digital technology has given us a more approach, almost of more is beautiful, but it's not just quantity. And in fact, I think graphic design, which is often about colour and movement, are entertaining, but not necessarily helpful. That two-step process, or at least to do something, is extremely dangerous. I think a, a judge in America recently condemned Tesla, of which we've commented in a road test, where to change the speed of the windscreen wipers is a two-step process off the middle screen of the vehicle. Yes, it's a very good point that you're making, David, and um, it brings me back to a, a colleague of mine, Professor David Strayer, who um, is at the University of Utah, and uh, his colleague, Professor Cooper, who I've been collaborating with 
on a project that uh, has been looking at actually developing a, a star rating scheme and a test protocol that, that could be, we hope in the future, implemented within the Australian New Car Assessment Program to test the distractibility of the interactions that people have in vehicles. And that's one of the things he commented on. When you've got vehicles uh, like the Tesla, and the, the Tesla is just one, one example, this is what you find. And, and if you have a look at the, the cockpit of a, a Tesla, it's, al- it's almost got no controls at all. There's a steering wheel there. So you, you've got to ask, as you rightly said, is it better to have an old-fashioned um, you know, rotary dial or switch that's, that's going to be able to uh, allow you to, to find your radio station or control the windscreen wipers without having to look away from the road? Because that's the critical thing. When you look away from the road, or if it takes your mind off the road, which we call cognitive distraction, which is also part of the process, it gets dangerous. I've just been driving a Golf GTI and it has a two-step process to change the speed of the fan, which is not good, I don't think, but it is trying to develop voice recognition. So I could say to it, and it can pick whether I'm the driver or the passenger because of microphone location, where I might say, I feel hot, and it will say, we will lower the temperature in the driver's area. There's still a considerable amount of times where you end up shouting at the steering wheel because you're not getting your communication over, and that's a distraction in itself. We call that cognitive distraction, and that's one of the big hot topics at the moment in in the human factors field, this whole issue of voice recognition. And we know that for some simple tasks like, you know, turn on the radio, that if the voice recognition system works in the first place, because that can be a distraction in itself if it doesn't, then that's okay. But if it's if it's a system that requires complex uh, dialogue, we've got to remember exactly how to say things to the speech recognition uh, system. That becomes more complicated. So the more complicated the dialogue, the more the cognitive distraction, and the more likely that through cognitive distraction it will affect your your driving in other ways. Um, one, of, one of the big issues uh, we find when people are cognitively distracted like that when they're, they're talking into a, a speech recognition system or even having a you know an emotive conversation on a mobile phone is that we suffer from what we call inattention blindness. So because our mind is la land, we'll actually physically see objects on the road like a pedestrian, but we won't react to them. And so that's where that whole piece around cognitive distraction is an important one too. When a person is talking to you on the phone, they're not aware of what you're looking at. So the boss or a work colleague may raise a great concern just as you're approaching a roundabout. They don't know that, but that's when you don't need to be told, hey, you're running late with such a project or there's a problem here. Exactly. And you've hit the nail on the head. And that's why we do find that when people are travelling with Passengers who are acting as uh, co-pilots, essentially, provided they're not complete backseat drivers, because that can be a distraction in itself, that they will actually improve the safety of the vehicle overall because they're supporting the uh, supporting the driver. They know actually when they're going through an intersection that they should shut up or, or they should tone down their conversation so that they're allowing the driver to have the mental capacity to deal with the situation. And so what you find is that young drivers or young passengers tend not to have that skill and so young passengers tend to actually be a bit of a distraction for young drivers if you've got a more experienced driver driving with a young driver or an older driver 
they provide that advice and they sort of self-regulate their own talking behaviour in this instance to support the driver. That's an element of behaviour change, isn't it? Not just a lecture or even give vague things like drive safely, but to say, where do you think you might get into danger? What happens if you're talking? Where would that be the most dangerous? So they engage and develop their own solutions without thinking that they're just having to obey their parents. Exactly, exactly. We've presented a couple of papers on that, trying to get a different approach. The only thing that I would say that I think might mean it's hitting a good point is that on both occasions, people came up to me after and said, I'm going to change the way I generally deal with my children. Let's go to also then uh, something that we all get every day and we think might be fairly straightforward, and that is the question of signposting and line marking on the road. A lot of work's been done in that area. Has there been enough human-centred design in that? I think uh, traffic engineers over the years, through experience and through expert committees, and other means, and of course, based on, on uh, some good research, much of it that was done you know, some decades ago, have actually designed the, the road and transport system in a human factor sense pretty well on the whole. We do have guidelines and standards, national ones and international ones, that transport engineers are generally using out there to try and get it right. But I'm sensing, not just sensing, I'm, I'm experiencing like a lot of other people, a lot of problems that are still going on out there. For example, uh, signs that are located too soon that make you turn off a road before you should and then you, you're in a pickle because you've, you've gone off on a side road instead of onto the freeway that you really wanted to go onto because of the way the signage was uh, located. You've got pedestrian traffic signals that, that give you no feedback when you press a button to let you know that you're there waiting as a pedestrian and then after that you've got to wait what seems like an endless amount of time before the light changes. And I don't know how many times I saw people in the city actually breaking the law because they were just fed up with thinking, A, that the traffic lights hadn't registered that they were there, and then it took so long to change that they, they just basically ran across a red light. And, and I saw so many people nearly killed that I got one of my students to do some research on it, and he found that about 15% of people in the Sydney CBD were crossing traffic lights illegally, basically because the waiting times were too long. You see things like signs with so much information that they confuse you and you become, as a result, distracted. As I said before, you know, the more time you have your eyes off the road, the more likely it is that you crash. You see that there's sometimes road geometry or, or trees that are placed in certain alignments that trick you into thinking you're going in a direction that, that you're not. You see speed limits on the roads that that aren't credible, you know, on a Sunday afternoon you're travelling along the Hume Freeway and there's a big sign saying, you know, workers ahead and 40 kilometre speed limit on a 110k road and there's not a single road worker there. And how credible is that? And it's no wonder people decide that they want to speed through those zones. There's no one there to enforce them and there's no need to enforce them at that point because there's no work, work going on. So it's all these things. It's a combination of things and... And the basic problem is, David, I'll calm down in a minute, but I get very excited about this. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> we, have a, we have a road safety auditing system at the moment that I give credit to the road safety community for, and I'm part of that community where they go out and, 
inspect segments of road and, and make sure that they're safe and work out what improvements have to be made. But the human factor is not a, a central consideration in that. There's not a specific human factors component of that road auditing system. And similarly, we have a, a system for rating the safety of roads called OSLAP. Again, a fantastic innovation where just like with cars under the Australian New Car Assessment Program, we award uh, star ratings for roads and road segments. They get a five star for a safe road. But again, we're not giving stars for good basic human-centred design uh, that we know from crash data and through research could further improve the design and safety of, of the road. So there are ways by which we can improve the user-centred design of roads. And then finally, at the highest level, we don't talk in road safety about human factors integration and the human factors integration process. So for example, in rail, and I know in uh, Sydney trains, uh, for example, in Sydney, if they put out a tender uh, to design a, uh, a train, uh, to design infrastructure that the train runs on, the tender has to provide what's called a human factors integration plan. And that's basically a, a document that tells them for all stages of the design, the construction, the operation, the maintenance, and even the decommissioning in the future, what the human considerations are that have to be met in order for that system to operate safely and efficiently and to be acceptable to users. So again, these are all sort of major mechanisms we have at our disposal for practically improving user-centred design of systems, but we're not doing it. You mentioned that we have good standards and you've just emphasised there the need for ongoing process and you, you use the word maintenance. A classic of signs is when they're obscured by tree branches or such. You need an ongoing maintenance role. There's been great concern. The Grattan Institute, for example, have come out and said what many of us have been concerned about, the declining in-house expertise and also independence to be able to keep maintaining the processes rather than just ticking a few boxes purely on standards. That's exactly right and that's again why I referred back to the, the course that I started a couple of years ago. I've recently, um, I'm an emeritus professor but technically retired and of course I'm still uh, doing quite a bit of research and helping with teaching at the university. But at the moment, that course isn't, isn't running, and I'm just hoping that, again, it'll start again next year because it, it is, as I said, the only course in Australia that's teaching the next generation of young traffic engineers and road designers what user-centred design is all about and, and where they need to go to get advice and what they need to do to, in, to improve the usability and safety of the transport system. You mentioned pedestrians. I've uh, just had a colleague uh, been researching a little bit of its history when the system showed that your pressing the button had been recorded that reduced the number of damages to buttons because people in the past were either pressing them constantly or even kicking them even when it was on the other side of the road if someone had pressed the button and it showed on your side that a call had been recorded it gets down to what might be called human factors well it is called human factors but it also has a cost benefit to it as well Yes, actually, you're quite right from a maintenance point of view. Pressing those pedestrian buttons is one of the, they say, one of the most redundant human behaviours <laughs> in the world, apart from 
you know, repressing the button on lift if lifts don't give you um, feedback as well. Uh, you know, it's yes. registered that you're there. You talked about consistency. You've said in your work that we know red means stop and green means go. Yet with pedestrians, we don't have an amber single. We have a flashing red. And that in itself has caused many people to feel that they're crossing against the law when it's flashing, when in fact that's an amber period. Consistency, is that the sort of thing that helps make signs and markings more acceptable and understandable? Yes, and you've hit on a very important topic there, that whole issue of consistency and design across the system. And we need to be consistent in the way we design the system for pedestrians, for drivers and others. And and that consistency thing you can also see in vehicles themselves. I mean, how often have you hopped in a hire vehicle, for example, and found that the whole human machine interface is nothing like the, the vehicle that you uh, currently drive and you start driving and all of a sudden... It starts raining and the windows fog up and and you can't work out how to defrost the windows simply because there's no standardisation of the way in which the interior of these vehicles is designed. Thankfully, out in the road environment, I think there is more uh, consistency in the way the system is designed. But as you say, there are some examples um, where it's not the case. But pedestrians, uh, you do have things like countdown timers, for example. Hmm. They can be useful in the sense that you know, they do actually tell you how much time you've got uh, before you cross the road. And I can't remember what, what the research tells you about, you know, whether or not less people actually cross illegally when you've got those. But you would think that from first principles that it would reduce the likelihood of people crossing illegally. The point about consistency and commonality in vehicle controls, I raised with a very major car company one time, and they were, they were greatly offended that they couldn't be their own unique approach. Yet we are moving towards more sharing of cars. I can hate a car because I can't set the radio easily. I have to watch that in road testing because I have the one-week unfamiliarity syndrome. But it reflects really your point about people getting into a different car without some degree of commonality there are cars i've stopped on the side of the road for half an hour to try and work out what to do you know vehicle manufacturers you know should be learning from the aviation industry because in the aviation industry it's a very different situation if you look at boeing cockpits and airbus cockpits there's great consistency in in the location and the design of displays and controls and dialogues through the human machine interface. And that's quite critical because, you know, pilots are hopping into these uh, cockpits. Um, they, they're flying with, with people for most of the time they've never flown before with. You know, pilots can tell you that in large commercial airlines they can fly for a, like a whole year and maybe only know one or two people that they're flying with. Mm. So in that, you know, design has to be consistent across aircraft because pilots are hopping into different aircraft all the time and if they had to hop into a different aircraft which they do each time and didn't know where everything was it'd be a total nightmare and there'd be planes crashing into the ground regularly. I think it was the Korean airline had a great deal of difficulty and a lot of crashes and they found it was the communication between the pilot and the co-pilot and there were cultural differences if a Korean co-pilot said excuse me sir I think we need to look at this an American pilot would think well that hardly means anything whereas the Korean was really saying 
bloody hell, we've got an emergency. Now, that raises the point of vehicle-to-vehicle communication. It's all very well to say this is up ahead, but what does that mean to different people and does it distract them just to get that information? Vehicle-to-vehicle communication, do you think that's an area that desperately needs to make sure it develops with human-centred design? That's a very interesting area you're going into, David, and I actually spent about a third of my career in aviation safety and human factors, and um, that point you touched on about communication in the cockpit, as you would know, is a whole area that they used to call cockpit resource management and now crew resource management. It may even have another name, but Hmm. it's all about facilitating a good communication between pilots and co-pilots so that the co-pilot is genuinely acting as a co-pilot and not, you know, as you said before, sort of sitting back and uh, not wanting to say anything because the pilot is in greater, you know, has a greater degree of authority than Mm. that. So I've actually done research to try and implement uh, crew resource management training for young drivers within car cockpits. I did some research on that quite some years ago and we developed a program, the ACT government, that was involved, and um, it had a positive effect in, in making co- you know, young co-pilots realise that there are things they can do to act as you know, eyes and ears for, for young drivers to reduce this, this uh, problem that we, we seem to have with you know, for young drivers with a young passenger. But yeah, getting back to car-to-car communication, that whole area is very interesting, and um, I didn't realise that our discussion was going to take us all over the place and I'm really enjoying it. If they knew me well, they might have warned you against that. (laughs) (laughs) I've sort of worked in most of these areas. Yeah, this is lovely. Yeah, car-to-car communications are quite an interesting one. Um, At the moment, uh, and I've thought a bit about this, you know, at the moment you've got, you know, we're going into the realm of automated vehicles and that's creating all sorts of issues from a a human-centred perspective. One of the issues, the big issues at the moment is that we've now got vehicles that we call um, with so-called level two automation, where, and a Tesla is a very good example, and, and many other high-end cars at the moment have it, where you've got a system where you can turn on the adaptive cruise control and the lane-keeping assist system at the same time, and the car can just basically drive itself hmm. along the freeway within the lanes of the freeway, totally hands-off. But the vehicle does require you every now and then in the car I've got, for example, every 15 seconds or so to touch the steering wheel again when you're driving in a sort of semi-automated mode like that. But that causes all sorts of... That can cause problems if, if people don't use the, the system appropriately and, and then you, you would be well aware of crashes in Teslas and other vehicles uh, overseas where people, you know, artificially do things that make the steering wheel or the vehicle think that they're touching the steering wheel and they sit back and relax and you know, read the newspaper and send texts and next minute they have a crash because the vehicle can't actually operate under the conditions in which the driver thinks it can operate. So, so that's a, a big issue at the moment where people are abusing the system and, and then you've got to say, well, from a user-centred perspective, is it appropriate to design a system that way that allows people to um, operate the vehicle in that uh, semi-automated mode? If, if use it and if they're going to abuse it what how can you redesign it to avoid that abuse so you know it's a a big issue it is a critical issue that i think we have been blinded by the concept of the technology 
and that you said quite rightly of driving down a motorway we're a long long way from driving anywhere anytime autonomously i think it's certainly if you go onto a road without good line marking for example it can also become a problem of course they say the car may tell you when you've got to take over but then you've got to by the figuratively or literally wake up and take control of a vehicle that might be travelling at 100 kilometres an hour. Are we getting a, a more balanced view of what it will really take to make that work? Because the people I interviewed three or five years ago were all gung-ho. Is there a reality coming into this? That's a very good question. I think that certainly that issue you raised about what we call Level 3 vehicles, or vehicles with Level 3 automation, is, is beyond the level two, and that's where the vehicle can, you know, for example, drive itself along certain parts of the road environment completely by itself. And as you rightly say, it might take you through the suburbs, but then when it gets back to the freeway and uh, onto a ramp, it'll tell you you've got to take over. And as you rightly say, uh, there are, if the driver's distracted or if they're fatigued or inattentive for some other reason, they might not be ready to take back control uh, quickly. And so the whole issue of design there becomes... How do you design the system in a way that's going to facilitate rapid and uh, good quality takeover performance? And so, you know, getting back to your question, there's a lot of work going on in that area to work out how you can optimally design that takeover experience for the driver to uh, facilitate a, a timely and safe uh, takeover. But some manufacturers are just openly saying that uh, they don't go ahead with this uh, level three automation. But they say, well, the research shows that we know if people are distracted and inattentive that the likelihood of being able to take over that vehicle in a timely way and safely is just going to be so difficult it's going to compromise our consumers and customers. So we'd rather just wait until the vehicle's more capable and skip level three and go straight to level four automation, which means the car can basically drive itself and you don't have to take over. But where are we sitting time-wise with all of that? Well, it's a very good question. I don't think anyone can tell you that. For certain, there are vehicles that are quite highly automated operating overseas at the moment. You've got the likes of Waymo and some of these other companies that are testing these vehicles. But the vehicles themselves haven't quite reached the point. Uh, and this is really the, the critical question. Can they drive more safely than a human under all conditions? And at the moment, they, they can't. And... I think it's going to be a long time until they can. My my personal guess would be we could be 10 years away or more from that point because it's a bit like aircraft. You know, you've got to say, why why do we have aircraft that can fly all the way from Australia to, let's say, Los Angeles by themselves, let's say an A380 Airbus? Why do we still have a couple of pilots sitting in there? Well, we have a couple of pilots sitting in there because sometimes things, things go wrong. And we can't always foresee the situations in which an aircraft might find itself. And the automation isn't perfect. And so, you know, we need that human there as a backup. And um, I think, you know, the way it's sort of heading, I think, is that eventually when these automated autonomous vehicles are out there, it'll probably be the case that, that you'll probably need something like air traffic controllers. But they won't be air traffic controllers. They'll be road traffic controllers that, Instead of a human backup, because there'd be no driver of these vehicles. Uh, people would just be sitting there as occupants. And, 
you know, maybe the occupants will feel safer knowing it. There's an air traffic controller or road traffic controller in this case there as a backup if things go wrong. So there's that whole structure around it that we need to think about. It's like an ecosystem with multiple players. And, you know, until we get that whole ecosystem right, I don't think we'll have total autonomy, you know, total vehicle autonomy. Well, it's very much a system approach, isn't it? And a word you use very early on of a process. It's not as if we can sit behind a desk and pontificate on and come up with the ideal answer. We need to evolve, and it's an ongoing process. Professor Regan, I've taken a huge amount of your time, but I've enjoyed it immensely, and I think there's so many things there that I would really like to think we could continue on and build on. Well, thank you, David, and, and it's been my pleasure too. I mean, it's it's really good fun when you speak to someone who actually has a really good knowledge of the area, which you clearly do, and I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. And that is Michael Regan, who is the Emeritus Professor of Human Factors with the University of New South Wales Research Centre for Integrated Transport and Innovation, and he's showing what I think is a wonderful concept and understanding of the complexity of the situation, but how we have to consider not just new technology for its own sake, but how it integrates, how it engages with the people who have to use it. Overdrive is a radio and podcast program featuring road tests, interviews and features on motoring and transport. More information is available at drivenmedia.com.au and podcasts on Spotify or iTunes.